0: in 1st Samuel we'll be picking back up that with that in a few weeks but we want to kind of hit a series looking at what it means to be a Christian and so this will be initially a trilogy of sermons it may go beyond that but the first one this week is what is a Christian and then next week will be am I a Christian and then we'll try to wrap up with um, examine yourself so this week we're looking at what is a Christian And it is one of those things that we probably don't tend to think about in the South as much because anywhere you go, almost universally in the South, people will tell you when asked if they're a Christian, yes, of course, I'm a Christian. Of course, I believe in God. And I don't know if any of you are like me when you hear that, but I'm always cautiously optimistic. I'm optimistic in the fact that I may have a sister or brother in the faith that I didn't know about. But I'm also cautious because I'm always thinking, okay, you say you're a Christian, but what kind of Christian are you? What do you mean by that? Are you an authentic Christian who is actually been saved and is practicing that faith? Or are you a counterfeit? Are you an actor, one pretending to to play a part? And so this probably means, you know, more to me at the school where I work, you know, obviously working at a Christian school and working in the role that I work being the director of spiritual formation, there's probably no one who gets lied to more than me when told that someone is a Christian because people just don't want to have to tell me that they're probably not, especially in this context. And so I do want to be clear, you know, before we get this sermon started I am not in the business of convincing Christians that they're not really Christians. I'll never do that. But I'm also not in the business of convincing non-Christians that they're Christians either. And so what does that do for us? What does this mean for us? Firstly, we need to have an assurance of our faith. We need to know that what we believe is true and that when we die, that we will be with Jesus for eternity. We need to not only know that we are Christians, but we need to know the eternal impact that assurance has on our lives. We also, however, need to know that when we are standing in front of someone who really isn't a Christian who may say that they are, that we need to take that as an opportunity to to prick and pry and find out where they actually stand and maybe take that as an opportunity to witness to them. And so we're going to look at a pretty interesting text today in order to determine what the Bible says regarding what the status of someone's Christianity and their faith actually is. We're going to be looking at Luke chapter 23 today. We're going to start at verse number 39. It's going to seem obscure at first, but it has a lot in this text about what it means to really be a Christian. It's a text we're all familiar with. It says, one of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, are you not the Christ? Lord, this is a difficult question, and maybe all of us or maybe none of us in our walk has asked this question, but it is one that we need to ask, but it's also one that we need to have an answer for. What is a Christian? God, you charge us in the Bible that we should always have an answer when people question our reason for believing, our reason for being in the faith, God, and that begins with us knowing what a Christian actually is. And so, God, I just pray that this brings us clarity for our own standing, that we will have assurance. But also, God, hope that it serves as a filter for those of us who may not be authentically walking out our faith. And that this would be a moment for us to realize what true Christianity is and what it means for us to actually come into saving faith. We thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, I know it seems, like I said, like a pretty obscure, maybe arbitrary Um, text to refer to when it comes to understanding the dynamics of what defines us as Christians but I do want you to think about some things concerning this man that may give credence to him being the source of our sermon today what are some things that we know initially about this man when we read this text well the first thing we know is that he is a criminal he is a criminal We don't know all the specifics of his crimes, but we do know that the Bible also refers to him as a thief. So we know that he is a criminal who has at some point been a thief and has been crucified here because of that. The second thing that we know is that he understands his deservedness of the cross. He knows, in fact, that he deserves to be on the cross. He flat out tells us that. He says, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. He knew that the punishment that he was having to endure was a just punishment. And thirdly, he knew that Jesus did not deserve the cross. He says, but this man has done nothing wrong. You know, the longer we are exposed to Christianity, the more we are exposed to offshoots to off-brand, great-value versions of Christianity, things that aren't actually Christianity, you end up with some of the greatest heresies of our day. And just in case you don't know what a heresy is, that just means a false belief. That's an untrue belief about Christianity, untrue doct- doctrines regarding our faith. Almost every single false sect of Christianity is in some way no matter which one it is, undermining what Jesus did for us on the cross. Now, they may not mean to do that. Perhaps at some point they were well intended, but it does not deny the fact that they are wrong. All of this tends to revolve around one singular principle that people have been trying to wrestle with and reconcile. One question that people have been trying to answer what makes one a christian perhaps the fear is that because anyone can be a christian that there will be too many people claiming to be christians who aren't christians and so in order to reconcile that issue many of these false beliefs have all tried to in some way systematize salvation they want to give a system to salvation so that we can identify properly. Okay, this person has been through the steps that say they are a Christian. So what does that tend to look like in churches? What does that tend to look like in beliefs? Well, I, you know, I like to do my research. So I pulled some information from different churches and denominations regarding what they think makes a person a Christian and these were some of the major themes there are four major themes there the first thing that most churches argue that made a person a christian was baptism that in order to be a christian you had to be baptized that if you had not been baptized your salvation is null and void that's first one the second one is not just baptism but baptism in the proper way There are some denominations that argue that you have to be baptized in the name of Jesus. You have to be baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You have to sprinkle. You have to dunk. It's one of the many arguments that has existed throughout church history. Number three, there needs to be some tangible evidence of conversion. Again, some denominations say speaking in tongues. There are others that said tithing. There are others that said church attendance was a requirement in order for you to be a Christian. And then the fourth one, seemed to be pretty common, was willful repentance. Willful repentance. That one had willed repentance in themselves. Now maybe there are some of us who have also wrestled with this same issue, but what exactly is a Christian? What are the prerequisites for becoming one? I'm an avid Seinfeld watcher. It's my favorite show. It's the best show ever, by the way. And on one of those episodes, Jerry gets a large check for one of the shows that he had done. he decides, I'm going to buy his his parents a Cadillac. And when he tells Kramer that he was buying his parents a Cadillac, Kramer responds to him, oh, you're going to get some points with the big guy upstairs for this one. And he goes, isn't that what it all is about? And, you know, unfortunately for a lot of people, that's what it's all about. Can I do enough good works and enough good deeds to earn myself some eternal points in heaven with God so that he sees me as worthy? And we've been trying to reconcile this. On October 31st, 1517, Martin Luther sought to rectify this very issue within the Catholic Church. See, they had long manipulated people, convinced people into thinking that they were justified. That is, that they were made righteous in the eyes of God through their good works, through their good deeds. And for this reason, the church sold indulgences and advised people to do other things in order to get themselves in right standing with God. Now, if you don't know what an indulgence is in the Catholic Church, basically what that does, that's a payment you make to the church in order to push yourself or your family member out of purgatory and into heaven. And they made a ton of money by convincing people that unless they were morally good and had the works to prove it, that they were not believers. So Martin Luther confronted the church and stated that as he looked at the scripture, it was clear that man is justified, man is made righteous, not by good deeds, Man is not made righteous by their own goodness or their own works, but man is justified by faith in God alone. That means righteousness is obtained only by faith, and that faith itself is not a work of man, but it is the work of God. So how does this particular text help us see that? Well, first, let's look at the miraculous here. He is the first conversion as the result of the cross. This man hanging on the cross is the first conversion as a result of Jesus being on the cross. Perhaps we have never thought of it that way, but that is the reality. He was the first fruits of cross conversion. Of all the difficult conversions that we see in the Bible, if you think of someone like Paul, this one is actually perhaps more puzzling than even Paul. I mean, look at the circumstances surrounding this man's condition. We are given no context other than his status as a thief. And I can imagine he may not have been the most theologically sound man in the world either. Look, all the things that we tend to look for in order to convince somebody that we are a Christian or that they're a Christian, this man is missing out of his life. There is no baptism. There is no church attendance. There is nothing. There is not the life's devotion to the gospel that we see from the likes of Paul or Peter or even the sons of Cyrene, Simon, who Jesus had had helped carry his cross. In fact, we have no evidence that this man was converted at all. That's the second thing. Evidence is not proof of conversion. Evidence is not proof of conversion. If evidence were the only proof of conversion, then we would have no logical reason to believe the man on the cross next to Jesus was actually converted. Far too often when seeking to justify one's salvation, there is a long list of things that we mention that we have done. We may even mention that we attend, we attend church a certain amount of times a week we may mention how long we've attended church we may mention the areas of ministry that we serve but alas this dying thief on a cross can make no such claim y'all this is a problem for us because we are all trying to measure our salvation in some sort of way As evidence to say, I'm saved because I do all these things. Yet here is a man who has been promised paradise, who has done no such things. Almost every measurement we look for in order to prove ourselves as Christians, he's missing. Yet he was given the assurance of his salvation from Jesus. What were the words of Jesus to this man? Today. You will be with me in paradise. Let's compare and contrast this man to different groups of people that we see in the Bible. Those who tried to give the best evidence of their conversion. In the Gospels, Jesus is confronted several times, but in one particular occasion by a group of Pharisees, because he had healed a man with a withered hand on the Sabbath. And their issue with him was that he wasn't keeping the law as good as they were keeping the law. On the Sabbath, he would worked. He would healed a man. And that went against the law. But see, that law and their obedience to that law was their reason they felt like they should be accepted in the eyes of God. That was their righteousness. In their eyes, they were righteous because they kept the law. When the rich man came to Jesus, he sought to know the key to entrance into heaven, and he wanted it to be through his obedience to the law. That obedience, again, was his means of righteousness. But he left Jesus disappointed, realizing that apart from a harsh devotion, there is no righteousness to be had. Jesus warns us of another group of people who will all stand before him one day and who would declare to him their deeds as their means for entrance into paradise. He says that they will say, but for you we did these things. In your name we did stuff, God. For you. We cast out demons for you, God. We healed the sick for you. We raised the dead for you. We attended church for you. We gave our offering for you. We were celibate for you. We didn't drink for you. Yet none of those things will be enough for them to get in. But I want you to think of this. See this image in your mind. They will be baffled. Because there will be in that same moment. Some pauper. Someone so poor in spirit who stands before Christ when asked, And you, sir, what did you bring to get here? And he will reply, O Savior, nothing in my hand I bring. No, but simply to thy cross I cling. And the Savior will reply to him, For yours is this inheritance. This is what is so beautiful about the conversion of the thief on the cross. What does he bring to Jesus worth saving? Does he bring years of faithful service? No. Does he bring years of good deeds? He doesn't. Does he bring a life lived of deep and thoughtful repentance? He didn't even have that. The third point, he brought nothing. The thief on the cross brought nothing. He has nothing of worth, nothing of value to bring to Christ. He doesn't come with a resume proving his deservingness, but rather he comes bare. He comes with a resume saying, here are all the reasons that I should not be saved. Here are all the areas that I have failed. Here are all the areas that I've sinned. I am the definition of an ungodly man. But what do the scriptures tell us? In Romans 4 and 2, it gives great news to those of us who may be ungodly. For if Abraham was justified by works, His faith is counted as righteousness. Take note here. Who does God justify? Is it the godly? No. Is it the righteous? No. Is it the sinless? No. The Bible says that God justifies the ungodly. If you come to him with your reason for righteousness, don't expect justification. If you come to Jesus with years of faithful service in the church, don't expect justification. If you come to him with your good works, don't expect it. Your offerings, your tithes, don't expect it. There is no justification to be had for you. But if you come to him broken, impoverished in spirit, devoid of value without him, then you are in the perfect condition for salvation. But let me add this to you, because I've always said this, and I you know I'm clear, I always say, there are no prerequisites for you to be a Christian. And technically, th- I mean that is true, but there is a caveat to that. There is one prerequisite: You must be a sinner. Now, oddly enough, We all have that prerequisite. Every one of us is ungodly without him. Again, it is the ungodly that he declares righteous. And we are all either currently in that state or we have been in that state. But this is the beautiful part. If I am in that state, I don't have to remain in that state. And if I was in that state, I'll never be in that state again. So what makes one a Christian? What is a Christian? How do we define what a Christian is? Look back again at what Jesus said to the thief on the cross. He asks, will you remember me when you come into your kingdom? Now, I don't know the inflection or the connotation. There are two ways that I feel like he probably asked his question. When you get into your kingdom, please remember me. Or when you get into your kingdom, will you even remember me? Either way, he doesn't have the presumptuous attitude that the disciples had. When they didn't ask Jesus about whether he remember them or not, you know what they assume? Well, since we will be in the kingdom, where will we be seated? He doesn't say that. He is less concerned with the kingdom if he can just have the king himself. When we are drawn to Christ, a Christian is not there simply for a change in eternal residence. But they are there because they want the king himself. And I'm telling you now, logically, rationally, if I told you, you have the option, to either burn in hell for all of eternity without one second being easier than the last or to be in eternal peace. Everybody would say, give me eternal peace. But Christianity is not just about a change of residence. It is when I look at the holiness of Jesus Christ on the cross, do I know that there is not one thing in him that deserves to be there. And when I look at myself in my freedom from his wrath, do I know there is not one thing in me that deserves that freedom? He simply wanted Jesus. So what made this thief a Christian? These were the words. This is what made him a Christian. Truly. I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. That declaration from Christ himself created belief in this man. That faith is credited to this man's account. It was no longer the thief hanging on the cross in his place, but it now became Jesus hanging on the cross for himself and hanging on the cross for that man. Man is declared righteous by God through faith. And that faith is credited to man's account as righteousness. A Christian is one who has been declared righteous by Christ and who has turned from their practice of sin to a practice of righteousness. And they then bear the fruit of that profession. So let's look at it like this. Can you be a Christian and have no good works? Well, no. You can't be a Christian and have no good works. But can you be a Christian or be a non-Christian and have good works? You absolutely can. The only thing that makes one a Christian is not what they do It is not what they're doing and it's not what they did. What makes us a Christian is what Jesus has done. There are no boxes that we check. There is no itemized list. No. Only Christ makes Christians. Only Jesus alone can declare that the ungodly are now righteous. That's what makes us Christians. It is not any goodness of our own. It is not anything that we've done for ourselves. It is not any good work. It is not an itemized list. There are no boxes that we check. Only Christ makes Christians. And so as I close, my hope is that if you are a Christian, that you have the assurance of your faith that I'm not a Christian because of my goodness. I'm not a Christian because I'm keeping the law and keeping my obedience. I am a Christian because Jesus lived a perfectly sinless life. And I've been redeemed because God now sees the works of the son in me. But if you're not a Christian, my hope is that you will realize that there is no amount of effort that you can give into this. There is no amount of work that you can do. So maybe you can rest from all your laborious work trying to, create Christianity in your life and realize that unless Christ saved, none of us has a chance at salvation at all. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for this thief on the cross. God, we thank you that he is indeed a reminder that faith only happens in us as a result of what do you have done? God, there is no way any of us can conjure up belief. We don't have enough merit, God. In fact, we are spiritually bankrupt. If there was a cost of salvation, Lord, certainly we couldn't afford it. Yet Jesus has given his life. He has given himself in order that we might be saved. God, we thank you that those of us who believe have the assurance of our faith, knowing that once we are sealed, because this is the work of Christ, there is nothing that can undo that work. We are eternally secure in you. And God, this is not an opportunity for us to have a free license of sin, but this is the freedom to pursue your righteousness and pursue you. But God, those of us who don't know you, those words still reign true. There is nothing that we can do in order to save ourselves. So Christ, like Charles Spurgeon did one fateful day as a teenager, we look to you. We look to you in order to be saved. And God, we know that we cannot do that for ourselves or in ourselves. And I just pray, God, if there's anybody here, anybody watching who doesn't know you, And who may wonder, what is a Christian and what must I do to be saved? Then the answer is nothing. There is nothing you can do to be saved. But Jesus has done everything possible in order to save you. That's our prayer. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.